Well, no doubt some of you at least have heard of Ayan Hirsi Ali. Anybody heard of her, a human rights activist uh, who left Islam and then became, a famous, uh, became famous among the New Atheist Movement and uh, who has recently now become a Christian. In November, she wrote an article telling why she left the Islam of her youth, which was the Kenyan Muslim Brotherhood in particular. Uh, she left the Islam of her youth for atheism and then left atheism for the Christian faith. Um, in this article, she said that the atheist Bertrand Russell, who famously asserted that fear is the basis of religion, he said fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death, uh, Russell helped her walk away from the Muslim Brotherhood uh, that was always sort of dangling hellfire in front of her and sowing fear and hatred of the other in her, particularly of Jews. But atheism eventually left her flat. She argued that her reasoning was not only personal for coming to faith, but global too. She expressed concern over threats to Western civilization from three different but related forces. Great power authoritarianism and expansionism, which we're seeing in Russia and China, um, and really other parts of the world. The rise of global Islamism, like the Muslim Brotherhood, of her upbringing and the viral spread of woke ideology, she says. And she said it's eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. And here's what she said. She said, the only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. The story of the West, warts and all. She argues that this tradition is responsible for everything that secularism takes for granted. Ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity. From uh, the nation state and the rule of law to freedom of conscience and freedom of speech to the institutions of science, health, and learning. All grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. But to me, the most striking thing she said was this. She said, it became increasingly clear to me that Christ's teaching implied not only a limited role for religion, something separate from politics, but also compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. She summed up by saying, it's only the power of a better unifying story that can withstand these other destructive stories and that can provide spiritual solace, provide meaning and purpose while confronting the powers that are at work in the world. And that story, that better story, she said, has already been told. We've been telling it for two millennia. So Ali's journey and her article, it also made me think of a book that I read a few years back from Alan Jacobs called The Year of Our Lord, 1943. Uh, in short, it's about this handful of public intellectuals during World War II who were asking the same question separately, but, uh, but, but asking the same question. When and if we win this war, this great war through technological and economic superiority, what kind of world awaits us? What kind of people will we be if we win it this way? What kind of countries will we be as a result? And that handful of people included authors C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot, French philosophers Jacques Martin and Simone Weil, and the English poet W.H. Auden. Separately, again, they were all wondering, in one way or another, how can we regain an appropriate humility and a healthy exercise of power, regardless of who has it? 
Louis Vey and, and, and the others, for all their diversity of backgrounds, and they were pretty diverse, all their diversity of thought, they all agreed that Christianity offered the only real answer, the only real story. They weren't deluded in thinking that everyone would become a Christian, because they won't, but they believed that only the self-understanding that Christianity provides us, that it could influence society for the better, a Christian humanism, influence it for the best even. Part of what they saw already happening in their world, in their countries, and in the church, in Western Christianity itself, they, they saw it was already being reshaped, that the church was already really biting hard on, on the bait of progress. Rebuilding and building the nation, putting production and consumption at the center of our focus was increasingly becoming, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the first thing. The first thing. And so he said this, Lewis said this in a BBC radio address, he said, progress is what we all want, but progress means getting nearer to the place you actually want to be, but if you've taken a wrong turn, then going forward doesn't get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means first going back to the right road. And he concluded, we're on the wrong road. And I would hope that most, if not all of us, can see, if not feel, the truth in that. And the question today is, what does this have to do with Jesus' baptism? Which we celebrate every first Sunday of Epiphany. I think it has everything to do with it. For Christians, for we who are called to steward and proclaim the way of Christ in a very contested and confused and dangerous world, the way forward always begins at the beginning, at the reality and meaning of our baptism, even before we fully embrace the ethics and values of Christ's kingdom. Our baptism begins at the truth and historical reality of Jesus' own baptism. It is where we are united with him. It is where his humility and self-giving become ours, our way of life, our way of confronting the world as it really is. If we're going to live the Christian life well and on the right foot, individually and as the church, our understanding, it has to uh, continually be oriented back to and then forward from our union with Christ, which is his, his baptism and ours signifies and secures our union with Christ. To be a Christian means to be in union with Jesus. The fundamental question, the right question for every Christian is and always has been, if I have been baptized into Christ, who am I? What now? And what does it mean for the church? What does it mean for the world? And that's where I just want to spend maybe the next 15 minutes. Again, as Anglicans, we focus on, and, and the majority of Christians around the world, we focus on the baptism of Jesus every first Sunday of Epiphany, and it's the sort of the second revelation of who he was and is beyond Israel and to the world, to Gentiles. We begin with the visit of the Magi, the wise men from the east, every January 6th, yesterday, the Feast of Epiphany, and then his baptism reminds us that Jesus made a way for Gentiles, for outsiders like us, to enter through rebirth at baptism into this bigger story, into the redemption story that began in Israel. Through baptism, here's the message. Everyone can be born of God as sons and daughters, regardless of ethnicity or geography or history or anything else. That's why 
we proclaim the baptism of our Lord today. It's the way we get in. So let's look at Mark 1, which is the appointed reading for Jesus' baptism this year. Um, We look at the different accounts each year. It's pretty brief by comparison to the other Gospels, but we have the others to help us round out more of the details, and they're important. So in Mark, though, the key details are there. Jesus is baptized by John, and a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, announces that he is the beloved Son. And what we see right here is the, as the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove, we see the Trinity in full relational connection here. But what else is going on? First of all, Jesus is being anointed as king. And this is the language we find in our Acts reading today. The earliest Christians understood this is a kind of coronation, biblically speaking. And it keeps with the coronation language of the Old Testament, which we saw in our psalm today. This heavenly proclamation that comes at this moment, it validates Jesus' sonship. What is it doing? It's validating and anointing him, in some sense pouring the oil of the Holy Spirit over him, and it validates his right to lead and to represent the Father as the firstborn. It won't be another ruddy, handsome king like David who's going to act selfishly and impulsively for his own agenda. It's going to be one who has a genuine love of God that works itself out in his own self-giving, who at every turn rejects his own self-interest for the will of the Father. Like the oil that was poured over the head of a king like David, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit coming down upon him to do this anointing, giving power for his ministry, counsel for his teaching, giving him comfort and salvation in the suffering that was about to come in his life in just a few short years, and really was already coming throughout the course of his ministry. But secondly, as king and the anointed one, here's what's happening. He is providing for all others. He's providing for others. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, we find out that John kind of doesn't know what's going on here. Jesus has flipped the script on him. He's baffled why Jesus would want to to come and to be baptized. It's the beginning in verse 13 of, of Matthew 3. Uh, It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So what's he talking about right here? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, there's an obedience at work here as this appointed king. He's going to do what he came to do, but he's going to do it first right there in this symbolic and spiritual act. His baptism as king is really a first revelation of, it's a first initiation of the kind of death that he would die for others. The king will himself bring humanity through the troubled waters of life. His own body will be the first womb, uh, the the first body in, in the womb of the water we might say, the firstborn from among the dead. He is enacting right in this moment his death and his resurrection at his baptism. And right here he's beginning to do for Israel and for humanity what Israel and humanity cannot do for themselves. He's doing it. And then he does what? In his ministry. And as he commissions his disciples, he invites and calls us into this achievement into this favor with the Father, into the water. He makes the water of baptism our entrance into his risen life through death and out the other side. 
into the family. The son, the firstborn, the king, the chosen one is already making a place for us in his father's home. As John already told the Pharisees, Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. So what else are we getting? He will make the Spirit available to us, to those who follow him into the waters. And we will also have this spirit of sonship, the spirit of daughterhood, by which we can cry out to God for the same strength and the counsel and wisdom and salvation that has come through Jesus. That's how Paul explained it in Romans 8. We can cry out too to the Father. So it's all of this that Jesus extends to us. And this is where the road begins. It's, it begins right there, not in an idea embraced, but it begins as a body in the water, as a body experiencing the water, touched with the water, his body, his life, and because of his, our life. As Western people, as we say quite often, we are steeped in rationalism and individualism. We have to join the church throughout time by just sort of warming up our mystery muscles. You know you have those, right? You got to have them. Mystery muscles to believe as the church has always believed about this. Baptism isn't just a public profession of faith. What did the church believe? And what do we believe? Just this, with his own holy body in the water. Listen, Jesus once for all created a singular and sacred spiritual intersection of heaven and earth. He created a joining of time and eternity that did what? It inaugurated a repeatable, experiential sharing with us of what the Father gives Him in that moment. That's how we're meant to feel about this. So baptism is not merely conceptual. It's not merely ceremonial. It is as historical and physical as it is spiritual. Not surprisingly, Jesus is, he is embodying the fulfillment of, pro, of the prophecy in Isaiah 64 when the heavens tear open to do what? To help the helpless, to save those who can't save themselves, to clean the unclean or cleanse the unclean and for the Father to make us, it says, the work of his hands. And as in our Isaiah 42 reading today, what is he going to do? He brings justice and righteousness to the earth as the Spirit falls upon him. But guess what? He's not going to do it with violence. He's not going to do it with political power or oppression. He's not going to do it through technological might or economic progress. But how? Through his own suffering and death. To do what? To strip all the powers of their power. So we can go into the waters weak, knowing that Christ's power from the Father by the Spirit is for us. His life becomes the first thing for which, uh, for those who receive it as their own lives. It's our first thing. It's birth. Everything he receives, Jesus receives at the moment of his baptism, he gives to us. The righteousness necessary for us to return to God and to keep returning to God because we have been with him in that place, in that intersection. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus will tell his disciples not merely to go and to proclaim what he's done and to teach people what he said, as any rabbi of his day might have done, to change hearts and minds. What does he tell them to do? He commissions them to baptize 
everyone in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To physically reenact for all God's new people the very moment of heaven opening to them, to you, the moment of the Spirit's peace and power descending upon them, upon you, and the exclamation of the Father's pleasure in His Son being expressed for you. This is our first thing. The core of our identities as individuals and as the church. This is our first thing. This righteousness, God's promise and His power and His pleasure, they actually become our starting place. They also become our starting over place when we've royally messed it up. This is not where we're hoping to arrive after a lifetime of earning and effort. This is where we belong. And Christ, this is a good news message, by the way, isn't it? In Christ, our work is no longer limited to the futility of repetitive effort to produce and to consume and to produce some more and to hoard and to build our walls of insularity and fear and power around our own comfort, our own interests, our own nation. Now our lives are part of the renewal of all things. And it begins and ends in the humility of baptism. Water becomes more than water, and so our work becomes more than work. All things are transfigured. They are changed. Our baptism changes our sense of purpose, the way we live in the world, see the world. This is what we're living our lives for. This is what, I love the way that, that Eugene Peterson described it. He called it just congruence. And we're living all of our lives to live them congruent with what's true at our baptism. An actual life that looks more and more like what the baptized life has made possible for us what holiness is, to be who we truly are. And none of us are fully there, not yet. So we begin and we continue in humility. We know where we began, where we're going. We know where the world is going and why, why it's going there. And that's what is meant for Christians, to answer the question of who we will be, no matter what comes, who we must be, who we are in any and every era. That answers it. So in closing, let me share this Scottish proverb with you. It says, They speak of my drinking, but never think of my thirst. They speak of my drinking, but never think of my thirst. And I think this relates because I think in his own baptism, Jesus knows our problem, but he thinks of our thirst. He knows what's moving us as humans what our desire is for meaning and purpose in real life, and to be able to overcome. More than thinking of our thirst, he lives our thirst. He lives our humanity. He lives our need for rebirth. In a body like ours, Jesus does what he identifies with the desires that so often lead to those wrong turns that we got to turn around from, repent from, the shortcuts and failures that result. Jesus embodies our thirst. He gets us, and he resists our common tendency to just slake the longing of our souls through means that can never satisfy that thirst. Listen, every season of life tests us, and what it reveals is often quite different. The struggles that we face, they raise the question of who we'll be and who we'll emerge as on the other side of what we're going through. 
what can feel like a great war. We find ourselves struggling to overcome in the midst of it. We find ourselves struggling to forgive on the other side of it. We find ourselves longing to heal after so long, after going through it. And sometimes for us, the battle too, the, hard, the, the, the thing that we go through is less difficult. And then we get on the other side of it, it's validating. It feels victorious. And what does that have the power to do? It has the power to inflate our sense of strength and our sense of autonomy. What sort of people will we be then when it goes really, really well for us? The same. Same answer. It always returns us to the water's of our rebirth? The answer is Jesus. In the season of Lent this year, I want to invite you, you may not know this, there is a baptismal font that we baptize in right out here. As you come in, many people practice the tradition of coming through the water of baptism, coming through the water of baptism into this place. To come, touch the water, touch your head with the water, just look at the water, think about the water. My hope, you know, and it's not magic, you know that, but my hope is that your interaction with it, with small, it's it, but I think a significant act, can foster greater faith and a reminder of your union with Christ. You're not coming in here. You're not coming down here because of you. You're coming because of him. So I leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who I think is saying much of what I've tried to say, maybe more eloquently, but he says this. It's the best thing he ever said, I think. Our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may, we have something solid and tangible to preach for our gospel is a person. He says, if you had asked the 12 apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would not have stopped to go around with a long sermon. Touche. But they would have pointed to their master and they would have said, we believe him. But what are your doctrines? There they stand, incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice in the water. He is our example. What then do you believe? Hear the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul. We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in a person. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.